So you're a local here uh, near Hepburn, the wind farm. What brings you here today? Uh, it's my first visit to look at the um, turbines and to hear the talk. And uh, I do have a few shares in them, so I just wanted to get a bit more involved with what's happening. Ah. So what motivated you to get the shares in the first place? Uh, well, the green energy aspect, but also it's a local project. And uh, I guess it was a token investment. It, uh, financially, that I mean, yeah. Um, have, have, a, have a go and ask him <laughs> while I form my question. If you don't mind me asking, how much did you put into it? Or you can not answer that if you don't want no, to. That's okay. Um, uh, well, I thought it was a modest sum of $1,000. Oh, so that, that's good. Every bit, every bit helps. Do you know how much it was all up, the uh, investment? Oh, um, totally. It was millions. So I considered myself a small contribution. <laughs> But, 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 but you're part of it, and what's your impression being here today? I'm very impressed, totally impressed by the speakers and what's been done. Hilary, you're from a company called Jelly, and you're telling me you come from San Francisco here to the Community Energy Congress in Melbourne. G'day. G'day. Uh, well done. You've got the vernacular. You said g'day. Now, uh, your, your company is called Jelly. So Jelly is an energy storage software company. So batteries alone are not smart. They need software to tell them what to do. So for example, if you have solar on your roof, uh, installing a battery system could be pretty valuable for you uh, for a couple reasons. One, if you are in an area where uh, you are not getting paid back as well as you used to for that extra solar energy you were creating, um, that is happening in many territories here in Australia, you can use a battery to store that solar and use it at nighttime so you are not charged by your provider to you know, buy energy from the grid. Uh, as well as uh, batteries are helpful for making sure you're using energy at the cheapest times of day. So if you are on a utility uh, tariff where you are charged for energy at different times of day um, more than other times of day, um, our software enables you to make sure that you are always saving uh, money and storing and releasing energy at the right times. So it's really about the economics, it's about maximizing your return on investment on the solar panels, was that the, the really short summary? That's the short summary, make as much value out of your solar panels as possible. And now it's got to do with the, uh, the, the money equation here, so how much you pay for electricity versus how much you get when you sell it back to the grid, there's, there's a disparity in Australia isn't there? Yeah, so depending on what region you live in, um, you maybe at one point in your career with your solar panels were getting paid back pretty well and it made a lot of sense to have solar on your roof, but at this point um, that is not always the case anymore, uh, so it, it is about making sure you're getting as much value out of those. Is this relevant to me if I don't, like what sort of configurations does it apply to? So let's take the really most basic configuration. All I've got is solar panels, nothing else. How, do, how does that help me? Yeah, so that is a great example of someone who would be interested in uh, getting a jelly-enabled system. So we work with battery manufacturers and inverter companies who are really good at making hardware but don't necessarily have the software smarts. So we could recommend to you a hardware provider to buy a battery that has jelly as the software powering the system. Oh, so the jelly software is built into the battery itself? 
we have a small computer that is installed on site with the battery, um, very tiny, and it is connected through software to the battery. So it, it, it interacts with it and it tells the battery and the inverters what to do. So tell me a bit more about the logic that's built into the Jelly software in simple terms. Uh, so basically our algorithms that are running um, on this small computer and powering the battery are first of all looking at you know how much you're paying for energy and they're looking at you know how big your solar array is and how big your battery is and then figuring out you know when should we be storing the solar from the grid and then when you know when is ex when is it expensive to be using energy so thus when should you be using solar to power your home instead of pulling energy from the grid so does it know about my personal use of electricity yes so our software has programmed into it your historic usage or we you know we take usage as we get it from your home but then we're also taking into account whatever utility tariff you're on so our software also has all of the Australian tariffs programmed into it so if you are in a certain region we will know what utility tariff you're on and your historic usage and we'll use that information to inform how our algorithms are operating you know, actually, this, there's a parallel here, I'm thinking, with lifts or elevators, I think you say, in the US. Right, so when I get in a lift, I think the old dumb system, the elevator would just park itself on whatever floor you left it at. But when people coming and going into the office at certain times of the day, at lunchtime, everybody goes out of the building. In the morning, they're all coming into the building. And with a smart elevator system, you could tune that and save a lot of energy on your lift. Is that a reasonable analogy, do you think? Sure, yeah. So every home and office building or commercial building also has peaks where there are a lot of energy usage and then there are uh, times when there are not a lot of energy usage and we will be tracking that and making sure that uh, you know, you're using energy most intelligently. Now, what does it do at the grid level? What does it do to the network electricity providers? Sure. So if um, you have purchased this system potentially from a retailer here in Australia and uh, the retailer has sold many jelly-enabled systems uh, across its territory, uh, the retailer would have the power to aggregate those systems, so uh, use any excess capacity in the batteries to um, help uh, the network operators and the grid. So blackouts here are obviously a challenge for Australia and so uh, the retailer would be able to tell the network operator we have this excess capacity that will help you power the grid during those really peak demand periods um, and uh, the homeowner in turn could get paid back for that battery uh, power that they're offering up to the retailer to help the grid. So it's uh, really important, it's, it's really turning the whole system to a much more intelligent uh, adaptive network, should we say? Yes, exactly. We're trying to make sure that we're kind of decentralizing the energy system. What, what sort of response, what sort of reaction are you getting here in Australia? Uh, it's going pretty well so far. We've uh, really had folks on the ground here since mostly October, um, but we're really just growing the team now and we're just beginning a lot of those conversations. But um, it seems like storage is definitely going to be important for the Australian market and we're excited to be here. So you, you yourself have come here from San Francisco, your hometown. Yes, you're nodding. And uh, <laughs> how are you finding it? Uh, it's great. I uh, have been in Melbourne for three days, and uh, it's a great city so far. I have more to explore. And what got you involved with Jelly? Why, what motivated you to want to do this sort of thing? 
I've always been interested in environmental work. I studied environmental policy uh, as a student, and then I worked uh, in energy efficiency, and now um, when I left that company, I was interested in being at the forefront of the energy world, and storage seems to be the next big thing. Was there a particular time, a place, an event, or maybe a person who, who shifted your thinking? Um, I really became interested in the environment as a young child at a summer camp where we lived off the land and we had a farm and a garden and no electricity. And that's where I learned the value of uh, how much I appreciated the environment and how much it needed our support. What's your reaction to developments in the US? How are you feeling generally without getting too political about the way it's heading? Um, it is an unfortunate, very, very unfortunate uh, what is happening in the United States, but um, I've been heartened to see you know, so many people uh, banding together to think about what kind of uh, activism that they can play a role in and what kind of you know, how they can use their skills to make sure that we're continuing to help our environment, but also, you know, help the people of our country who are going to be most negatively affected by this administration. So I think you're saying that there's the groundswell, it's, it's the people on the ground, like here we are at the Community Energy Congress, is that the, do I use the term, the energy of the people behind this? Yes, there's good energy from people. I mean, it's a, definitely a challenging time, but there's good energy and people are uh, banding together to make sure that we continue to, you know, show the values that are, you know, truly American. So, Hillary, are you are you optimistic? I think you can only be optimistic to survive the next four years. Right, Hillary, it's great to meet you, and uh, thank you very much for your time today. All right, thank you. Okay, Anthony Taylor. And you're from the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals here at the Community Energy Congress in Melbourne. G'day, Anthony. G'day. And uh, what is the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals without a beer? Uh, yep, we are the peak body for cooperatives and mutuals in Australia. So we've been around for about five years. Before that, Australia didn't really have a peak body for cooperatives. And what's your main role? What's your function? Well, we're to represent and advocate for cooperatives, uh, mainly at a national level, but uh, we're also down here at the Community Energy Congress, so we have a focus on the community level as well. Okay, so when you say advocate, what does advocate mean? So we're talking about uh, fixing up legislation and regulations around cooperatives. That's been one of the big problems for cooperatives to really develop in Australia, uh, is the, the legislative framework. Oh, okay, so you're lobbying state, federal government, local councils to, to simplify the laws for cooperatives, is that correct? Exactly. You couldn't put it uh, more succinctly. What are the sorts of issues that uh, you face with, with those regulations? So one example is that cooperatives are still regulated at a state level, whereas uh, companies are under the Corporations Act, which is a national federal law. So for now it's got better because each state has adopted the cooperatives national law. So you can it's become a lot easier to operate a cooperative nationally. But it's still at, it's still under state law. And why is that an issue? Is it, is it because a cooperative might want to operate across more than one jurisdiction? Yeah, so as the economy has become more national um, with globalization as well to be competitive, I guess it's it's easier if you can operate nationally with less costs.
Okay, so how do you go about doing this lobbying? We uh, go and talk to politicians about cooperatives. Often it's um, for cooperatives, it's actually they haven't heard about cooperatives, so it's at, actually at that base level of just explaining what a cooperative is. Um, that's the starting point. Uh, yes, yes, you were explaining to me a moment ago what a, a cooperative is, and we might touch on that in a moment. What kind of reaction are you getting from the people that you're talking to? I think once you talk to people, they're actually pretty positive. Most people uh, like the idea of cooperatives when you sit down. Um, it's just a good way from across the political spectrum. People are enthusiastic because, um, you know, there's a long history of farmers having cooperatives, pulling their resources to be able to get a decent price um, for their produce, um, workers' cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, where you you know, you, you can own a supermarket as a consumer. Everyone, I think, thinks that's a good idea once you talk about it. Yes, so it's not just community energy. It could be like there was dairy farmers, uh, primary producers and, and so on. How difficult is it to change the legislation? How big is the job for the legislators to do this? Um, it's not that big. It's a few amendments here and there. That's where we'd like to start, I guess. Um, just with cooperatives, we're starting. You know, we haven't had a peak body until now, so that's that's really has been the stumbling block. So I think in the next five years, ten years, we can get a lot of the changes that are needed. I also use the term peak body, and I guess that's that encapsulates that term encapsulates what the business council of cooperatives and mutuals is. What's advantage of a cooperative? Why why do you see them as being important? So on one hand, it's the, the values proposition, which is that, for example, for community energy, it's a way that if you really value community control and ownership, so democratic control, I should say, um, it's a way of doing that and ensuring that that's going to be in, kept in the community for a long time. It's a way of protecting those assets or that wealth that you build up in a community. The other thing is it can be more efficient because you, you can, it's a way of pooling resources. So if you're consumers, you can do bulk purchasing as a cooperative. That's an example where you, you all save a bit of money doing it that way. It's just a matter of coordinating it and formalising it into a cooperative structure. I'm wondering also, is it a means of restoring power to the small producer from the big supermarket chains, for example? Is that uh, gives them more leverage with those by grouping? Is that something that it's an advantage you see? Uh, definitely. I mean, there used to be a lot more cooperatives, agricultural cooperatives in Australia, and they were definitely a way of, and they often formed like out of the depression, one of the existing big agricultural cooperatives, um, CBH Group in Western Australia. They're the grain transporter, multi-billion dollar cooperative. Uh, they formed out of the depression when farmers were going through a tough time. So often it, it takes like a tough time um, for people to realise that you can get more if you pull your resources. Do, do, do you know why there has been a decline? I think one of the issues was yeah, lack of a national body and lack of the legislation and regulation to encourage development of cooperatives and also the policy not being focused on cooperatives. Yeah, I think that's really the big factor. If, there, if there's a policy support for it and I think we could see communities really go back to using cooperatives. Anthony, you were saying to me a moment ago that your background is legal. What got you interested in this? Well, 
per I came to it personally that I worked at the student union uh, restaurant owned by the student union. So it wasn't a co cooperative formally, it wasn't registered as a cooperative, but it ran along similar lines. It was owned by the owned by the student association and was there to serve the students and try and give cheap food, affordable food to students. So I could, yeah, from that I realised that the cooperative is kind of the, the legal structure when you really want to do that and lock it in. Is That's how you do it. And now if I'm running a cooperative and I want some support, I want some advice from you, yourself or your organisation, uh, what can you do for me and how do I contact you? Well, I'd love to chat to anyone or receive an email from anyone who wants to just find out whether it would be a suitable structure for them or just wants to know where they can get resources. We do have free resources online at getmutual.coop, C-O-O-P. That's probably the best place to start. Um, and people could email me, anthony.taylor at bccm.coop, and we can take it from there. Thank you, Anthony, and uh, great to talk to you. Thank you. I can feel the buzz here at the Community Energy Congress in Melbourne and I've got a whole table here of people and I'm looking across at two of them at the moment and uh, we've got Shirley Saywell. G'day Shirley. G'day Rod. And uh, Shirley and we've got Andreas Koffler. G'day Andreas. Hello Rod. Hi. And Shirley and Andreas are from the Euroa Environment Group. And on my right, I've got Dr. Peter Mitchell. G'day, Peter. Hello, Rod. How are you? And I've got Jeff Wilmot. And uh, you are both from Sustainable Seymour. G'day, Jeff. Hello, Rod. <laughs> All right, I've got to start with you, uh, Shirley and uh, Andreas. Who are the Euroa Environment Group? <laughs> Okay, we've been around for about 30-something years. Um, we're a community group who basically got started over um, a little issue regarding a bit of bushland, which the council wanted to turn into a tip. We got organised, we managed to, to stop that, and I guess we've been involved in a variety of community issues over the years. Uh, the latest one is pretty exciting because we've paired with Peter and Jeff and the Seymour mob and that's given added kind of impetus to this quest to see if pumped hydro is uh, a viable option for um, the, as a renewable energy source for, for our town. Oh, for storing energy. We'll get more into pumped hydro in a minute now. Andreas, where do you fit into the scheme? Oh, I'm Shirley Saver's partner, and I got sucked in by all her projects, of course. <laughs> but I'm enjoying uh, to be a part of that, um, and it's really good to be looking after the environment, what the environment group tries to do, and I think that's part of it, to have an impact of um, helping the environment to have renewable energy in our town. So, Andres, what, what motivated you to get involved with the uh, Euroa Environment Group? Um, what motivated me? I'm, I'm really fond of nature and um, I want to have an intact nature as much as possible. Even uh, we live at the creek in Euroa, which is a lovely strip of uh, you know, the country in, Euro in Victoria. 
and you know it would be sad to lose this and I think we can approach to have an effect on the future of our landscape in many ways and this is one way we're trying to have an impact to get rid of our uh, ugly and dirty uh, coal power. But next I want to go to you, uh, Dr. Peter Mitchell, and your involvement with the uh, Sustainable Seymour. What's that? Uh, Sustainable Seymour is a network of people who live in Seymour, um, partly from Beam Mitchell Environment Group, which is a local environment group in Mitchell Shire, which has been operating since 1980s, quite a long time, um, plus a, another group called the Seymour We Want, which was set up uh, to address some of the social problems of Seymour. Um, and we've got together with the idea of reducing carbon emissions but also making life better for people who live in Seymour. Now were you motivated to get involved with this because you saw something happening? Was there a point, a place, a time, an, an event that, that triggered you to want to do this? Well it's been building for many years so I, mean, I can go back a long way but I guess one of the, one of the uh, initiators of it was a series of workshops that were held in by Euroa, by the uh, uh, Strathbogie Voices. Um, they ran a series of workshops with some high-profile high speakers and we, we it came to the realisation that yes, as Shirley said, we need to get together. It's, it's up to us to do something. The government can't wait for governments. We've just got to get on and do it and these are things we, we really value. The impact, my background is in ecology and in terrestrial ecology um, as a scientist but I really love the, the, the bush around this area and the impact of climate change is just going to make it an awful mess of that. I'd like to pursue a bit more the rural perspective with you, but first I want to talk to our next guest, which is uh, Jeff Wilmot. And, and Jeff, you have a technical background. Yes, um, I, I worked for uh, oh, about 25 years in the paper industry, particularly involved in the uh, power stations. We had uh, cogeneration steam turbines the idea of uh, boilers were installed in power sta in uh, paper mills to generate steam to heat paper in the paper machines so uh, the idea is that you generate steam at a much higher pressure pass it through the turbine uh, on the way to the paper mill and so you can generate cheap power and that's what I was involved in the operation of that but also it was in parallel they were operating in parallel with the SEC so this became a quite quite a complex operation how to best control the output of the power station to minimize your overall power costs so I was heavily involved in that for quite a long time and then uh, when after I retired we built a house in the in the sticks, in the cattle ranges, and it's off the grid. So you're relying on solar power and batteries, and have been doing for 20 years. So quite for quite a very substantial part of my life, I've been involved in generation of energy in one form or another. And so when uh, somebody in the, at, at Euroa suggested the idea of, raised the idea of pumped hydro, I remembered many years ago seeing a list of opportunities um, that the SEC had for generating power in their, well, looking at their future, how they were going to uh, maintain the, the uh, capacity needed to, to uh, run the system. And one of the projects they had was, uh, was a pumped storage scheme working between 
a proposed dam in the Truhill Valley and and the Tellerick Ranges and the Truhill Valley, uh, the Truhill area. So that triggered the thing. This thing triggered my memory, and I had a look at it, uh, what the situation was now, and I thought, well, maybe it's possible. We've got the, the reservoirs there. It's an existing reservoir. It's not being used. It used to be used for the power so water supply for Seymour. Uh, and then 290 metres down, down we've got the, the uh, Goulburn River. And so there's still a potential, some sort of potential there for, gener for uh, storing, storing electricity. And so, you know, I picked up the idea and ran with it. And How does it feel now, looking back at that and given the current attitude to coal and gas and, and fossil fuel generated? What's your perspective on that now? Yeah, well, I just accepted the fact that they are fuel source used to be coal, it was Fairfield's mill for most of the time, it used to be coal and then, then they put in an oil-fired boiler and then it became gas and, uh, and I accepted all that but I was also conscious of the fact that we needed to minimise the fuel demand to maximise or minimise the cost of the electricity and to make the operation as, as efficient as possible. We used to have an argument with ECC too about uh, about their tariffs for a long time they objected strongly to other people generating power they reckoned that it was going to cause a problem in their system and uh, um, uh, but in fact our source of power was far more reliable than the than what the SEC contributed I mean they all had cars hitting their poles or possums getting across the line and things like that and they were always, we were always, they were always losing the SEC but so we were much more reliable after a long long time we convinced them of the fact that we were contributing and I think there came to a point, came a time in the SEC's life this is before privatisation privatization of course that they had to face building a new power station or finding other sources of power so they introduced uh, a demand management project looking at trying to encourage people to minimize their demand but also they realized that that we could possibly they could possibly be we could be, be a source of power for them too so they changed their tariff and I reckon it's probably the first feed-in tariff it could well have been because they then offered to pay us for anything that we contributed to them so, so Shirley and, and, and Andreas, can you now describe for me, you, you've got this pumped hydro plan that you want to get going. Tell me a bit about that. Uh, look, um, it actually started all with um, um, a seminar we had. We're holding, as um, um, mentioned before, that um, one uh, attendee of the Slackberry Voices seminar we had said, why can't we have renewable power here in Euroa? And um, immediately 40 people were actually on the board, you know, to, and so we formed and we called it the Committee of 40 to start a renewable energy project, which we didn't actually know what, where, where, which way it would go, but somebody came up, and I think it was uh, Fiona, which came up with that uh, um, idea of using the existing dams in Euroa the water supply dams, we have got three of them, so you can easily pump the water between them 
and actually using existing and that's what convinced me uh, existing dams for we don't have to build anything new so it's actually uh, tapping into what is already there and that's efficiency in its own so yeah and that's how we, I think we started and then we got connected to uh, the Seymour group and we joined the forces actually to get uh, that land uh, from I just need to backtrack a little bit. I'm not sure we have explained to the listener what pumped hydro actually is. Pumped hydro is quite simply uh, an energy storage system. We use electricity that is available and not being used, which could be uh, off-peak off electricity or it could be coming from something like solar power or wind power. That electricity is used to pump water from a low storage to a high storage where it's stored. When you want the electricity back again, you just run it back three turbines. Very simple. Uh, beautifully, nice and succinct. Thank you. We're not sure whether the capacity is going to prove viable for the project, but we're hoping that when they enlarge the lower holding facility, they can't enlarge the top one, so there could be an issue there. Now, Jeff, can you explain to me the engineering challenges? And Shirley has alluded to that with the capacity of the pair of dams. So the first thing is to look at the uh, quality of that existing infrastructure, see if it's able to withstand the change of duty that's involved. At, at Trewool, it's a, there's an old, uh, was built a wall that was built in the 1890s from granite blocks. It's a beautiful wall. So the challenge is more than just engineering in this case. It's a, it's a an aesthetic challenge as well that we're not going to bugger up what looks like, you know, um, what is a, a, a beautiful site. And uh, so that's one issue we have to, we've, we've been looking at. But then the engineering of it is, uh, well, there's very little there at, uh, apart from that wall and the, and, the, and the reservoir behind it. Very little at the moment at, um, in the Truil Valley. There's, but what, so what has to be run is a pipeline down to the river and there at the river there will be some kind of a, a power station, powerhouse, which will involve a, uh, first of all a pump that pumps, is able to pump the water from the river up to the reservoir and then you need a, a hydro generator, uh, a water turbine driving a generator. Is uh, connection to the grid an issue? Yes, but in, in this case it's very simple because the 66 kV line passes right past the site where we're proposing to put this powerhouse. There is an issue in the sense that it's, it's a 66 kV line, it's a transmission line, it's in the transmission system so that this generator would have little to do with the locals, the local people or very uh, comparatively little compared with what's, what would happen at Euroa. So we're looking at really the, the, the value of this uh, generator would be in adding to storage of the general system. Uh, also it's a means of making money because you can play, you know, you... you, you, you what sort of capacity uh, pumped hydro scheme are we talking about? How many megawatts? Uh, about, in our case, about four or five megawatts. And for how long could it generate that? Uh, about eight or ten hours. And how long does it take to kick it up if there's a shortfall on the on the network? 
Uh, presumably the, it would be rotating, already rotating, so within seconds probably. So would a, a scheme like this operating in South Australia when the blackouts occurred, if that spinning reserve had been available, would, do you think that would have made a difference to the blackouts they had there? Well, I think you'd need a lot of them. We're looking for about four or five megawatts in this case, but if you had a whole heap of them through the, through, through the system, then yes, it could make a significant difference. Okay, now you, you mentioned the aesthetics and another angle here because we're at the Community Energy Congress. Uh, what does it take to get the community behind this and what kind of reaction are you getting from the locals? Okay, well, we've talked about the 2015 environmental seminars we held in Euroa and there's general support out there and we held those seminars to tap that kind of support. And I think if things are explained to people, everybody knows energy prices are going to escalate. Not many people know what to do and they are relying on the government to do something. And there's a frustration that they're being let down and... You know, there's all sorts of political debate, but basically we've had no problem in garnering support from our communities because they can see that there's actually a win, there's, a, there's an environmental win, there's an ec economical win, and there's potentially a social win in that if you don't have to pay huge electricity bills, it means those who are marginalised are less marginalised because they don't have to fork out for, you know, escalating power costs. What, what kind of structure you set up? Is it a cooperative, a public liability, or are you still that work in progress? Is that right? That's actually why we are here to find out about what we could do and what we could set up. Is it a um, you know, community energy project or are we tapping into a power company selling the power to them? That's actually why we are here to find out. <laughs> do you have a feeling for how long this is going to take? You know, how If you wanted to have a guess, how long before you'll actually see a pumped hydro installation? If you're optimistic, I'd say you know we're going. We're, the pre-feasibility study is underway now. We have till the end of March, I think, to finalise it. Maybe it's May. So that's going to happen in the next few months. We will find out then if it's feasible. I know it takes a long time from you know determining whether something can work to getting built because you've got to get funding. But I would suggest because we've got a very proactive Labor state government that they know that they can get booted out when's the next election? Pretty quickly. So they're going to want to get some runs on the board. So I'm suggesting that projects like this are probably going to be fast-tracked if, if it's proven that they're viable. The next stage would be to get a feasibility study. So we need to go back to the state government for funding for a full feasibility study. Get to, the, get to the point of having a um, business case. In the meantime, no doubt we'll be working on how we're going to get the funding and all that sort of thing. And we're looking for a lot of money. This is a bigger project than what we're talking about. Solar situations that have been talked about here, we're talking about sort of five to ten million dollars, something of that order. So it's not cheap. But there could be very good returns on it. So it, the funding, if, if what we believe turns out, then I don't think we'd have any trouble funding it. But then, of course, you've got to get the... Uh, then, then the next stage is actually to build it. So, yeah, I think probably be a couple of years, I'd say.
And we do have a partner in that Golden Valley Water who own the sites, extremely keen. They've got the NEP, who's their senior strategist or something, is he, came, when he heard about us, he said, I have the impetus within the company, within the corporation to get this happening. I don't have the community support. So we can give him what he wants and he can give us what we want. So it's been a kind of lovely, lovely collaboration so far. And, and, and the, third, the third factor is, of course, the funding, how much it's a lot of money to raise within a community. It's a lot of money for the government to output too. So we may be looking at a public-private partnership with, with some company that may want to run with it as well. And uh, so uh, we're all optimistic. I think we're feeling very optimistic here at the Community Energy Congress because it has that kind of buzz. Peter? Yes, I'm feeling optimistic. I think it'll be a really good, good thing to be doing. Yep. And what about you, Andreas Koffler? Thank you. Yeah, look, it's definitely something, and we, we are excited to be here, and it's really a good vibe, and I think we will get something on on, on walking, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, but I think it will be fine. <laughs> and Shirley, uh, are you hearing naysayers? Look, I'm confused about whether our particular project will get up. Part of me thinks it's too small, it won't be viable, the costs won't, uh, you know, justify the end means but won't justify the end but I am thinking because it's actually pumped hydro is one is the oldest form of energy storage in the world if it doesn't work for us it'll work for somebody else I can see these things being placed right up the great dividing range because basically you just need some water stored high and some water stored low and it can work so if it doesn't work for Seymour and Strathbogie I reckon it'll work for a whole lot of other communities so it's a winner one way or another. All right, thank you. And uh, Jeff Wilmot, what's your final take? Well, we had a meeting this morning of people who were inter interested in pumped hydro. There are about 25, 30 people there, all very keen, and formed a, an interest group. There's that much interest already out there, and I think not only is there a technical energy demand for such a scheme, I think there's, there's, there's public interest in it too, uh, or will be once the, once the word gets around, and I'm very optimistic. I'm mostly op optimistic, and I'm especially optimistic when you come to forums like this because you realise how many other hundreds of people are doing what we do, and none of us are paid, but we actually care, and and I think people power, I think leadership will come from the grassroots. We'll all die waiting for it to come from above, and I've written in here, when, when the people lead, the leaders follow, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank you very much. It's great, great to talk to you all here today, and best of luck, and I look forward to the happy stories coming from Euroa and from Seymour. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Rod.